and welcome to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast. My name is Jesse, and I'll be your host. So on today's episode, we're going to be covering one of the ultimate cult classic movies. We're going to keep it in the spooky season because it's around that time of year. We're going to be talking about 1983's Sleepaway Camp, also known as Nightmare Vacation in the UK. Now, this film is infamous because of the ending of it, which if you do know what it is, then you know. If you don't, don't worry about it. I'll tell you all about it. It's also a little controversial because of how it handles the topics of like homosexuality and also being transgender. We'll get into it. It really is just a movie that is so bad it's good in a way. The actors in this movie, uh, they're all fairly young, um, and even the adults, if they are trained actors, I mean, they are, I'm sure, in a way, but, I mean, it is a train wreck you just don't want to stop watching. (laughs) Uh, And I think some people definitely really enjoy this movie just for this weird camp factor that's there. So I'll be sure to, as we normally do in the show, we'll be talking about the figures of this film, some critical response quotes I found, some little bit of production history of the movie. There's not a ton of that. I'll also be talking a little bit about an analysis from other people of this film, and then we'll move into a plot summary. So let's move into our figures on the film. So Sleepaway Camp was written and directed by Robert Hiltzig. It was produced by Jerry Silva and Michelle Tatosin. The release date was November 18th, 1983 budget was estimated at about $350,000, and it had an estimated box office of about $11 million. Now, I got this uh, figure off of felicarose.net or something like that, because there's not really a whole lot of comprehensive box office information of this film, but let's just preface to say that Sleepaway Camp did make a fair amount of money uh, off of its $350,000 budget, so let's just say it did make more money than that. Uh, And also spawned two sequels in, like, the 80s. So, of course, it did pretty good at the box office. We're looking at a Rotten Tomatoes score of 81% on the tomato meter and a 59% audience score. We're looking at an IMDb score of 6.2 out of 10 and a Letterboxd score of 3.3 out of 5. So I have some critical response quotes from some critics about this film. We are looking at Scott Weinberg from eFilmCritic.com who states, When... Sleepaway Camp focuses on something other than the rapidly growing pile of corpses. The movie nearly grinds to a halt. We're looking at David Keyes from Cinemaphile.org, who says, A slog through teenage nightmares that has the gall to assume anyone is interested in social commentary, especially when it is all formulated by ideas carbon copied from more talented filmmakers. And we have Mike Massey from Gone with the Twins, who states, Director Hitzig is so focused on creating a twist ending that he forgets to design an actual conclusion, leaving behind a number of loose ends and unresolved plot points. For our cast of characters, we have Felissa Rose as Angela Baker. We have Jonathan Tiersten as Ricky Thomas. We have Karen Fields as Judy. We have Christopher Collet as Paul. We have Mike Kellen as Mel Caustic. We have Catherine Cammy as Meg. We have Paul D'Angelo as Ronnie Angelo. We have Susan Glaze as Susie. And we have Desiree Gould as Aunt Martha Thomas. So I wanted to give a little bit of background about um, the production of Sleepaway Camp and how it really came to be. 
Robert Hiltzig went to film school at NYU, and he wanted to make a movie, as a lot of people going to film school want to do. And so he saw that at the time, there was uh, this popularity of horror movies, and they could also make a fair amount of money at the box office, too, if you make it. So he decided he wanted to make a horror movie. I don't really know if he was a particular fan of the genre or anything like that, but so he wrote this film just trying to make it shocking and horrifying, I guess. And he uh, wanted to make it happen. Unfortunately, around the same time, his mother actually passed away. And because of uh, part of an inheritance that he got um, from his mom actually went towards the budget of this film. But yeah, I mean, Robert Hiltzig really just wanted to make a movie. He ended up shooting it in Argyle, New York, near Summit Lake, at a camp that is formerly known as Camp Algonquin. He actually said that um, he, as a kid, went to this camp, so he was very familiar with it. The movie was filmed in five weeks, starting in September 1982 and ending in October of that same year. So the film had been storyboarded out before the first day of filming, but then after the first day of filming, they were already behind schedule. So they kind of just threw the storyboards out. And then also, because this is being shot in September to October in New York, the seasons are here and the trees change their colors. So even though this is, I guess, supposed to be set in the summertime, you can definitely tell that like there is some changing of the leaves and things of that sort. Another interesting thing about Sleepaway Camp is that a lot of the other kinds of movies that were coming out at this time, they would use adult actors to portray these teenage people, but Sleepaway Camp really was made up primarily of adolescent actors. You got a couple random people in here who might have been a little older, but who just looked young. But even like Felissa Rose, for example, who's kind of the star of the movie, if anything, she was literally 13 when they did this. So we're able to at least have that uh, that age appropriateness for a film that is taking place at a summer camp. So I would be remiss if I didn't mention the impact of Sleepaway Camp on the transgender community and also just trans representation in general. The twist ending of this movie is one that's very infamous and I'm about to completely spoil it. So spoiler alert, but we find out at the end of the movie that Angela, who has been the character we've been following as part of this is actually the killer. And we find out that Angela isn't exactly Angela. She was actually Peter. So in the beginning of the movie, we see John Baker and his two children, Peter and Angela, they get into a boating accident with a water ski boat and we see that John and one of his children are killed, and one of his children survives. We're to assume that this is Angela because we're following her through the whole movie, following her time at sleepaway camp and all of this. We then find out at the end of the movie that Angela has been the killer. She kills her love, Paul, by decapitating him. And we then see that Angela actually was taken in by her Aunt Martha in a flashback. And because... Aunt Martha already had a little boy. She really wanted a little girl. And so instead of raising Peter as Peter, Aunt Martha raises Peter to be Angela. And then we see that Angela uh, is actually a guy, uh, has a penis, all of that kind of stuff. Has a male body, all of that. So that's the big twist ending of Sleepaway Camp. And it was shocking back in 1983 when it came out. It's still shocking, maybe, for people who have not seen this movie and who know nothing about it. 
But I did want to just mention um, some critics who have talked about this movie and what they uh, have written about, just so that I can touch on this um, and get some perspective on what other people who are of trans experience uh, think of this film. So the first quote I have is from film critic and transgender woman Willa McClay in an essay about Sleepaway Camp for the magazine Clio. They characterize the film's ending, in which Angela is revealed to have a penis, as both a unique element that sets it apart from other slasher films of the era and deeply transmisogynistic. Willow criticized the film for its equation of mental instability with having grown up in a gender role not concurrent with your identity. And they state that nearly every single transgender person grows up being raised in a gender role that does not fit, and this does not mean that they are mentally ill or seriously violent. So that's one criticism of this film. Because with trans representation, it seems that you already have to fight against, you know, people's antiquated ideas of what being transgender is, and just the preconceived notions that people have about the trans community as a whole. So that's one way of um, looking at this criticism. The next quote I have is from BJ Colangelo in an editorial from Dread Central, who wrote that the ending of Sleepaway Camp offers two reveals that are wildly offensive to the LGBTQ plus community, referring to the reveal of Angela's penis as transphobic and the reveal that their deceased father was homosexual as homophobic. However, BJ adds that the film is terrible trans representation, yes, but it's an incredible metaphor about how forcing gender roles onto someone that doesn't align with who they are is fucking dangerous. If Peter had not been forced to live his life as Angela, the events of Sleepaway Camp would have been avoided. BJ also clarifies that she's not arguing that gender dysphoria causes those who are experiencing it to become murderers, but rather that children experiencing gender dysphoria and living in non-affirming homes are prone to depression, thoughts of suicide, and yes, sometimes violent outbursts. And I do recommend reading um, BJ's actual article. It's called Going Back to Sleepaway Camp, Revisiting the Problematic Classic. And it's a Dread Central. The last quote I have is from transgender writer Alice Collins of Bloody Disgusting. States that Sleepaway Camp is, quote, steeped in queerness, especially when compared to its contemporaries. In its day, it took a deeper look into the subject matter than that of other films. Angela and Peter's dad is a closeted gay man. There's forced gender bending, which is abuse rather than queer, but people will see it as such. And the majority of the scantily clad people in the film are men with all those very short shorts that leave little to the imagination, while there is little skin shown of the feminine variety. And Collins argues that Angela is a transgender girl, noting that in the film's sequels, Angela is presented as a woman who uses feminine pronouns. So, quote, Despite Aunt Martha being insane, she just happened to stumble upon a person who was already a girl, and it was an accident that her brainwashing worked. So as you can see, this movie has a storied history with its representation and just the plotline in general of what the movie is. 
Um, for myself, at least, I saw it many, many moons ago, and I've seen it a couple times since I've first seen it. And I will say that it's something where if you're a horror fan, I definitely recommend watching it at least once, just to say you did. You could absolutely hate it once you've watched it, or you could absolutely uh, be on board with it. I think it's definitely a movie that is polarizing, and it's one that either you're going to like how weird and campy it is, um, or you're going to completely hate how bad it is, and you also just find it maybe offensive as well. There's only so much room for middleman, I think, in this in this kind of argument, although it's your own opinion, it's your own thoughts. So without further ado, let's get to a plot summary of Sleepaway Camp. So we open on a title card that says, In Fond Memory of Mom, A Doer. And we then get into this dramatic title sequence with this dramatic-ass music. And pretty much we're just going through different scenes of the camp, Camp Arawak. Just this dramatic-ass music going on. So this camp looks to be deserted. And it has been, you know, just abandoned, it looks like. And then at the end of our title sequence, we actually get that Camp Arawak is now for sale. So after that dramatic-ass title sequence, we move in on a boat that is on the lake where Camp Arawak is in the background, and then you have this little, like, beachfront going on. So this man is getting a nice suntan on the boat while his two children are, like, arguing with one another. Um, we find out that this is actually John Baker, who's played by Dan Tercy, and these are his two children, Angela, played by Colette Lee Corcoran, and then we have Peter, who is played by Frank Sorrentino. Fun fact, Frank Sorrentino is actually the older brother of Mike the Situation Sorrentino from the MTV's show Jersey Shore. Anyway, so you have these two children, they're very New York, <laughs> and they're just saying like, I did not, you liar, did too, did not, did too. So you have this whole kind of introduction. Then we have an introduction to Craig and Marianne, they're the kids in the motorboat, um, and they are driving on this uh, boat. They are pulling a water skier who is terrified out of their minds. Craig is played by Paul Poland, and Marianne is played by Allison Mord. And we find out that Dolores is the girl who is water skiing, and she's played by Carol Robinson. So you see that like Dolores is scared out of her mind water skiing, and it looks like Craig actually works over at Camp Arawak as a lifeguard, and Marianne's just like somebody who either works at the camp with or something like that. And anyway, so, you know, you get this um, scene, and Marianne wants to drive the boat, so Craig, with a little bit of pushing from Marianne, lets uh, her drive the boat. And then the kids, we're back to the little boat with John on it, uh, the kids push their father into the lake, kind of as a little prank joke thing. And then, like I said, Craig lets Marianne drive the motorboat, even though he doesn't really want to, because he doesn't want to get fired, but he does anyway. We then get an intro to uh, this man on the beach. His name is Lenny. He's played by James Paradise. And he's saying that we got to get going because the dock will be here at 4.30. And so, you know, they're going to be swimming back to the, uh, to the beachfront. And we don't exactly know who Lenny is, but, you know, we're to assume that uh, they're a friend of the dad's, I guess. And so, you know, the father's like, come on, kids, look, we gotta get going. Like, you know, Aunt, you know, uh, Doc Thomas will be there. Uh, and one of the kids is like, Aunt Martha's coming. Will Ricky be there? So we find out uh, that apparently 
there's a doctor and that the doctor has a kid. Apparently, unfortunately, there is this boating accident that takes place. The water skiing people on the boat accidentally slam into this boat and ends up, you know, killing the people. So we see that John and one of his kids is dead. There is one kid that does survive. We don't see their face, but we do see them swimming away. The water ski girl, Dolores, is honestly on 12. She's just yelling, being like, Oh my god, we hit a boat! Save the people! And it's just overacting on 12. And it's honestly iconic. I love it. And then we see a lifesaver coming up from the water to assume that one of the kids has drowned. So after that dramatic beginning to our film, we are then fast-forwarded eight years later. So I believe that event took place in 1975 in the summer. We're now in... uh, 1983 in the summer, I guess. And we are introduced to Aunt Martha, played by Desiree Gould, who unfortunately passed away in, I believe, 2020. So rest in peace. But she is uh, carrying a paper grocery bag, and she is yelling for her children, Richard, Angela! And so you see the intro to Ricky, played by Jonathan Tierston, and we see Angela, played by Felissa Rose. Aunt Martha gives the bag to Ricky because they are packing up to go to sleepaway camp. Ricky asks, isn't there any chips? And then Aunt Martha just says, why, yes, I believe there's a whole bag. And then Aunt Martha is saying, like, you know, we don't want to be late for the bus or they'll leave without us. No, I'm afraid that wouldn't do. And so you see that Ricky and Angela are leaving for camp. And uh, apparently Aunt Martha has tied a string around her finger so she wouldn't forget to do something. And we just see an awkward silence because I guess Aunt Martha was thinking she had to do something, but she doesn't remember what she had to do. And so there's just this awkward, weird silence. And then she finally remembers that she actually has the physicals that she needs to give her children um, so that they can go to camp. And she also makes it a point to say, you know, just be sure not to tell you where you got them. Even though they do know I am a doctor. And so then you see that Ricky and Angela finally actually leave for camp. They leave the house. Goodbye, children. Now, I will just say this right here, right now. Aunt Martha is honestly in a completely other movie. Um, I think she was told to act this way, honestly. I believe um, I believe it was the documentary on Sleepaway Camp. You can find it on YouTube. Desiree Gould, who's the actress, I mean, she was like, these lines are just so weird, and I can't do this. Like, you're going to have to get somebody else. And Robert Hiltzig was like, you're going to do this role if I have to, like, mime these words out of you. <laughs> because he really wanted her to play Aunt Martha. So we get our intro to Camp Arawak. So these big yellow school buses are just coming in and they're dropping kids off at Camp Arawak. So they're just like running. uh, All these children are just running down uh, the hill to go to the summer camp. We get introduced to Mel, who is the owner of the camp, played by Mike Kellen, in his last on-screen role before he succumbed to cancer. And we also have Ronnie, played by Paul D'Angelo. And so he's the assistant director, it seems like. He is the second in command. 
We then get an intro to Artie, um, the cook, who is played by Owen Hughes. And so he is pretty much our pedo chef. And we also meet the rest of the chef team a little bit. And one of the people we meet is Ben. His name is, um, and he's played by Robert Earl Jones, which if that sounds familiar to you, it should, because this is James Earl Jones's father. So James Earl Jones, the voice of Darth Vader and just, you know, all around badass actor. Um, This is his dad playing in this movie, which I thought was kind of fun. But yeah, you get introduced to Artie. Uh, he is a complete pedophile, and he's looking at these children in a really weird way. And I don't like it. He says something about, you know, uh, where I come from. They call him this certain thing. I don't want to repeat it. Uh, but it's just really weird. And then Ben is just kind of like, they're too, they're like, they're um, too something to know what you're thinking of. And it's just really odd. It's a really weird scene. Then you get introduced to Paul, who's a friend of Ricky's, played by Chris Collet. And Paul says, man, wait till you get a load of Judy. Man, oh, man. And he makes this gesture of, like, I guess Judy has gotten breasts over the summer. Or now she has them, I guess. Because you see that Ricky and Angela have arrived at camp. And they're walking together. So when they get down to the main camp area, Ricky kind of introduces Angela to the camp landmarks. Because he's been coming here for a couple times. And this is her first time at camp. Then we see that Ricky sees um, Judy, played by Karen Fields, and apparently they went steady before uh, another summer, and he's just saying, like, hey, Judy, how you doing? And she just goes, all right. And honestly, Judy is the bitchiest icon ever, and we will talk about Judy. Just kind of rebuffs him. Ricky is then leading Angela to her cabin, letting her off, and just saying, like, I'll meet you later. And then Ricky and Judy talk, so Ricky's all like, you know, who are those guys? And Judy's just like, just some boys I met this morning. And Ricky is just kind of like, getting rebuffed by Judy, and then when she walks away out of earshot, I guess, he calls her a bitch. So we get introduced to the girls' cabin. So Judy goes into the cabin, and there we have the intro to Meg, played by Catherine Kami. And we also get the introduction to Susie, who's like the second-in-command of the girls' cabin. And she is played by Susan Glaze. And so Meg calls her the complaint department and all that. I also love how Meg has to literally spell her name out. So she says, the name's Meg. M-E-G. So thank God I got that spelling because I was going to, you know, totally fuck it up. But Angela's just sitting on her bed and she's looking at Judy and Judy's being a bitch to her, being like, what are you looking at? And Angela's not really just looking at her, you know, she's just staying quiet. She's not really talking a whole lot. And Susie's trying to be nice to Angela, uh, but Meg and Judy are just really on the offensive, like, right in the beginning, which is kind of weird. Then you see the intro to the mess hall where the kids eat. So you see, I think it's uh, Mel sitting down. I think Ronnie is sitting down in the middle. And then Meg comes up to Mel as well, which we'll get to later. And Meg is pretty much getting Ronnie to try and get Angela to eat because apparently she hasn't talked for three days. She hasn't eaten anything. um, And Meg's just kind of over it. So she gets Ronnie to try to help. So Ronnie rocks with Angela to the kitchen and Ronnie is played, um, as I said, by uh, Paul D'Angelo. And he has the shortest of short shorts. He then walks Angela over to the kitchen. Ronnie introduces Angela to Arnie, the pedophile, you know, 
cook guy and asks him to get her something to eat like you know hey she's not eating anything that we've prepared can you see if she can find her something in like the walk-in refrigerator or whatever to get her some food so Artie then takes Angela to the walk-in fridge and Ricky is then looking for Angela so he goes up to the girls and is asking like hey where's my cousin at like I want to know where she's at so then Angela and Artie are in the walk-in fridge pantry thing, and literally this weird-ass pedophile is about to, like, assault her because he's about to, like, undo his pants and all this shit, but then it's interrupted by Ricky, who walks in on this whole thing, and Artie just kind of goes crazy, harasses Ricky, and tells him not to say anything. Apparently, uh, Owen Hughes is actually a very nice man in real life. And he was very, like, a uh, serious actor, always reading in between scenes and stuff like that. And apparently he just, like, because there was no stunt coordinator on this movie, he just took Jonathan Tierston and just, like, knocked him up against these, like, you know, shelves in this pantry. And he did have, like, lines on the back, because um, he kind of pushed him into these so hard. Also... Felicia, Felissa Rose was 13 at the time. They didn't actually have her um, in this situation uh, with with Artie like that. Um, they weren't even present when this was all happening. I think they probably just had it where they shot Felissa, you know, going backwards, and then they shot um, Artie Owen, you know, trying to undo his pants and all that kind of stuff. But you know, she was in no real danger or anything because apparently Felissa Rose's mom was kind of a stage mom and made negotiations about how her daughter would be used in this film in particular. So we go from this like crazy ass like almost molestation scene to then we see Ben uh, James Earl Jones's dad uh, is peeling some corn and we get the introduction to this big ass pot of corn that's on the like stove right now. I don't know how you get something that big and I also don't know how you even cook anything in it but we're not even going to talk about it it's just there we then get a first person point of view of the killer I guess who is in the kitchen watching Artie boil the water and cook the corn so they're not doing anything quite yet they're just kind of scoping it out and then Artie is standing on a chair while he's preparing the corn like salting it and all that kind of stuff and we see that the killer is like inching forward more close to this chair and then pretty much pushes him, uh, pushes Artie on his butt to like, you know, make him kind of like lose balance. And then Artie is standing on the chair while this is happening and he gets the pull chair pulled out from under him and the big pot of water falls onto Artie and he just gets all these like gross ugly blisters on his you know face and his body and he's pretty much burned um all through his body he's not killed necessarily he's taken away by paramedics and he's yelling and then we have a detective talking to mel and ronnie about what exactly happened i guess so we got that scene and then once the detective has left we then see a scene with mel talking to the cook staff who's saying you know um hey, Ben, you know, you're now the guy in charge here. You'll get a little bit of a pay raise. And also the rest of the staff will get a pay raise as long as you guys keep your mouth shut on this. The one thing I wonder about this scene a little bit is like, Artie's not dead necessarily. I mean, we assume that like he's very maimed and, you know, rightfully so, but he's not completely dead. So wouldn't he be able to like say, ah, this person like he tried to kill me, whatever, like they... 
they you'd think they they could do that, but I guess not. So then we're back at the boys' bunk, and we have uh, something called Mind Over Matter that's being done with one of the campers called Mozart, uh, played by Willie Cuskin, and he's like kind of a geeky boy. Ricky is giving this like crazy speech about mind over matter and all this kind of stuff. Mozart's laying on the floor and he's told like you could do a sit up and you know it's mind over matter. And then when we actually see uh, the mind over matter thing, you know they count him down one, two, three, and then when Mozart actually comes up, he just hits his face into another boy's butt, which is kind of the whole joke of mind over matter. Then we get an intro to Counselor Gene, um, who is played by Frank Trent Saladino. And so he is like, don't tell me that Mozart fell for the old mind of a matter trick. So New York these people are, and I love every minute of it. So then they're going out to do literally the world's longest baseball game ever. This is a movie, and this scene goes on for a good five minutes. And it also, like, there's a scene where, like, you see them playing baseball, and then it just dissolves into another scene where they're still playing baseball. It's kind of crazy. Such quotes as I, I picked up from the scene. You have uh, one guy saying, fuck a man, asshole. And then I think Ricky says something like in the next scene. He says, this guy blows dead dogs. And then honestly, one of the best lines in this movie by far is somebody like says something to Ricky when he's about to like, you know, I think pitch or something or he's supposed to hit the ball or whatever. And somebody says, eat shit and die, Ricky. And then Ricky just says, eat shit and live, Bill. And then just let that soak in for a little bit, you know? Just think about it. Then we have Mozart playing a handheld video game in the outfield, which that would literally be me. I think I did, like, Little League when I was a kid, and I hated every minute of it because I'm not a sports person. So I literally was, like, out in the uh, the field just, like, drawing stuff in. I don't know. I was just doing that kind of shit. So I totally understand that. But then we, you know, come to the end of our longest baseball scene ever. We see that a dance is now going on. Um, it's just like one of those little camp dances that you have where, like, it's all awkward because boys and girls don't want to dance with each other. But, you know, whatever. People are having fun. So we have these boys who invite Angela down to the lake to swim. You know, they're because there's not a whole lot of girls at the, uh, I think they're looking for girls to try to, like, go skinny dip with or whatever. And so one of them just says to her, like, when they're trying to talk to Angela, they just say, Yo, Angela, why are you so fucked up? And it's just so weird. And Angela just looks at them dead in the face and doesn't speak. Girl, I get it. Because these guys are weird. I don't really want to talk to them either. Then Mel comes into the dance for some reason. And then he leaves. I think he was looking for Meg or something like that. And then we see Paul and Ricky. Ricky is in his 10-gallon hat that he's wearing, which I know Jonathan Tiersen was just like, ooh, I'm going to get this hat and I'm going to put it on and I'm going to serve the children. It's going to be great. So I'm just like, okay, great. <laughs> they come to the dance. Um, and Ricky and Paul actually get into a fight with the guys talking to Angela because, you know, they're saying like, oh, Angela, why are you so fucked up? And whatever. And then Ricky just calls them fucks. Not you fuckers. You know, not any of that. It's just fucks. Just singular. Just like fucks. It's great. Paul then introduces himself to Angela because they haven't, they only met like in passing. So they actually introduce themselves. He says he's sorry for what happened to her family because I guess Ricky kind of told Paul about it. Paul is saying that he and Ricky have only been friends for three years, but they're best friends. So, which is kind of how it goes, you know, especially when you're this age. Um, you see that Paul has to leave, and Angela 
in the first 31 minutes of the movie, finally says goodnight to Paul. And then Judy's just being a hater, honestly. Like, she's just looking at this with the two boys she was talking to earlier and just talking and just, like, looking at, um, looking at Angela. And I'm just like, okay, girl, like, calm down. Like, let's be, let's be real here. We then see Billy. Um, he's trying to get some girls to go skinny dipping with him and the boys. And then, but they don't want to go. So instead, the boys just, you know, go skinny dipping with each other instead, apparently. Then we see a scene where these boys named Mike and Kenny are, like, smoking weed. For some reason, when I watched this before, I don't remember that scene. So I watched this on Peacock, actually. And I was like, did I just miss this scene when I first watched it or something? Maybe I did. Who knows? So you have that scene. And then Kenny and Leslie. So Kenny um, is, like, one of the campers. And he's, like wondering if you can go out with someone on a canoe so then mike's like hey leslie will come down and she'll probably do it with you so you see kenny and leslie they go out on the lake on a canoe and then kenny's being a dick bag and he like tips the boat over and then leslie's just like you bastard i hate you and she just swims away and then you see kenny's just like out in the middle of this lake which that lake looks so goddamn disgusting i don't understand that but anyway so you see that, like, uh, Leslie's swimming away, and then Kenny goes underneath the canoe. He's looking for Leslie, even though Leslie literally is like, "I, you bastard, I hate you. And she's literally swimming away. I don't know why he's then going underneath the canoe to try to, like, find her. But he's going, like, under the canoe, and he's like, Leslie. And he's, like, hearing his echo. And he says, like, hey, Bobbery Bob. It's so weird. And so then um, the skinny dipping boys have come back from skinny dipping. Not homoerotic at all. Even though you literally see their boy butts and everything like that. It's so weird. But anyway, so they're all skinny dipping. They come back and, you know, um, they're wondering where Kenny is. But then Kenny uh, meets somebody under the canoe who's come up. And, he, and he's like, oh, you. I'm sure the other guys will be, you know, glad to see you. And then Kenny gets drowned under the canoe. And then the guys, the skinny dipping guys, just, you know, walk away. They'll be like, oh, we'll meet up with him later. So we see the next morning this lifeguard is bitching about the waterfront being a mess, which it seems like the boys from the night before were doing this. And he sees a canoe that's flipped over. He's like, where did that come from? And then when he flips the canoe over, um, he finds Kenny's dead body under there. And a water snake then just, like, glides out of his mouth, which is, like, slithers out of it, which is really gross. So then Kenny's body is getting carried away by the paramedics with, like, this old lady paramedic there, too, which I thought was really interesting. And this police officer talks to Mel and Ronnie about what happened to Kenny. You know, Mel's just trying to kind of cover it all up. He doesn't want anybody to know that this has happened. You know, similar to what happened with Artie, he doesn't want anybody to know that this has happened. Um, even earlier, he said, we'll just say that Artie found himself a new job. You know, that's what we'll do. And so now he has to go and call these parents of the kid to tell them that they have unfortunately passed away. But then Ronnie remembers that Kenny was always a good swimmer and that the police drive off. A uh, little fun fact about this. So the town uh, that they were in shooting this movie at this camp was actually was like pretty receptive to a movie being shot there. Of course, they didn't exactly know everything about it, but uh, the local police and uh you know, paramedics and stuff, they actually lent them uh, use of their 
their official vehicles. So these were actually the vehicles that were used by paramedics and police in this particular town that they were shooting in, which I thought was really cool. Then the girls are playing volleyball, and then Paul comes up to Angela to talk to her because they're hitting it off a little bit. And then Judy is just like being a hater with her side ponytail and her shirt that says Judy, which I love. And she just states, how come Angela gets to talk to the boys all day? We have to play volleyball. And Judy is just an icon with her side ponytail. I love it. She's getting kind of, you know, jealous because she's just like, why does she get to talk to them? And then we don't. And Meg gets up in Angela's face and Susie's trying to be nice to Angela again because Meg is just like being a hater just with Judy. And she's just like really getting it on her, even though she is not supposed to do that as like an authority figure. But, you know, whatever. Then we see that there's a movie night because that's what Paul invited Angela to. was like, oh, come to the movie night with me. Aren't we already supposed to go? But like, hey, yeah, no, come with me too. So then you see movie night finishes and everyone leaves the like little mess hall thing that they all had come to. And uh, then you see Paul and Angela are leaving and they're holding hands. And you see that they went to the movies together. And then uh, Paul is walking Angela back to her cabin and he takes her to like this other part and he kisses her twice, which is like kind of nice, I guess. And then when Angela then goes back in her cabin, Paul and Judy talk a little bit and Judy just says, I just didn't think she was your type. And so you see that Paul and, you know, Angela are kind of getting on a little, you know, they're having a little romance, which is kind of nice. In the meanwhile, the boys have now put shaving cream on Mozart's hand, and they, like, wake him up where, like, he slaps his face with, like, uh, shaving cream. And then, literally, my boy Mozart just pulls out a knife, and he's just about to, like, try to kill Ricky or somebody. Um, and then Counselor Jean has to come in and intervene so that Mozart literally doesn't kill anybody. So I think this scene is to kind of try to show that, like, oh, maybe it's Mozart who's killing everybody, you know? They're trying to get those um, different kind of parts um, of this. Like, part of it is, like, maybe Mozart did it. Oh, maybe, like, Ricky's doing something or whatever. It's just to kind of show, like, that this person who is killing people, it really could be anybody. So Paul, the next day, comes up behind Angela at the dockside and puts his hands over her eyes. He's saying, like, guess who? Be like, uh, Ricky. Nope. Burt Reynolds. Which I love the way she says Burt Reynolds. It's so funny. And then, uh, you know, Paul sits next to you know, Angela, talking to her, talking to his boo. And then Judy comes over in her one-piece bathing suit that she's got on. And Meg then comes up to Angela after they've both left, after Paul and Judy have both left, and is harassing her about not swimming, even though like, I think Susie comes up and is like, she doesn't have to necessarily swim, it's okay. And so then Ronnie has to, like, split Meg and Angela up as well, because, again, it's just like... Meg is just out on the warpath for Angela for some reason. And, you know, Ronnie has to, like, break them up and everything. So then we see that Angela's back in the cabin and Judy has come out of the shower. And she's trying to now roast Angela. So she's saying things like, you know, Hey, Angela, how come you ever take showers when the rest of us do? You queer or something? And then, you know, she just tries to keep going in on her because Susie's trying to be like, you know, okay, Judy, stop. And so she says, 
no, you know, and she's saying these things of like, she probably showers, you know, differently because, you know, she hasn't hit puberty and she has no hair down there. And then she says the other wonderful, fabulous line in this movie where she says, she's a real cop in his dream. Flat as a board and needs a screw. And then Susie just slaps Judy. Now, I'm just saying, I know that there's a shirt out there somewhere that says she's a real carpenter's dream, flat as a board and needs a screw. And honestly, I just need that in my life. Or I just need paraf- you know, memorabilia that has that on there. So you see some boys having a water balloon fight on the roof of a cabin, which I don't know why. And then they hit Angela with a water balloon. And she just, you know, lunks down on the, the, uh, the ground. And Ricky yells at the boys on the roof, says, I'm going to kick your fucking ass, you fucks! And then Paul comes over to Angela and, you know, is, like, consoling her after she's been hit by a water balloon, even though it's literally a water balloon. And the Mel uh, has the boys come down off the roof. The kids are not really thinking anything of it. Then we see these kids are, like, running down a path. And then Billy, one of, Billy is one of the kids from the roof who threw a water balloon at Angela. Um, he has to take a wicked dump, apparently, because he comes into his cabin. And he then goes to the bathroom. But he says he'll meet up with his friends in a little bit. And so while he's taking his wicked dump, uh, somebody puts a broom handle on the bathroom door to, like, makeshift, make a lock um, to lock him in. And then we see that somebody has taken, like, a stick, and they have, like, a beehive, and they just, like, take the bees and they enrage them, and then they drop the beehive into the stall where Billy's at, and then they just kill him by stinging him, I guess. And then we see the aftermath of this with his face crawling with bees. Now, I'm not saying bees are not to be messed with or anything, and I totally understand because I'm totally frightened of bees. Um, cause I don't want them stinging me and stuff. But here's my thing is that like, what kind of bees are these? Like, I mean, maybe if you enrage them, I guess, but like, what are these bees doing? You know what I mean? Anyway, Ronnie and Mel are talking about the most recent death of Billy by bees. And then Mel seems to think that he knows who the killer is. So he's like, you know, thinking, okay, I know who this is. Like, oh yeah, I saw the evil in his eyes. But we don't actually know who he thinks quite yet. We have an idea, but, like, we don't actually get a name or anything. And then it's nighttime, and Angela is, like, skulking around in a cabin looking for somebody. And somebody comes from behind her, and we have this dramatic, like, look to the camera. Paul and Angela talk for a little bit. Because it was just Paul. And then Paul and Angela frolic down to the lake. And then they end up in the sand kissing. Because, you know, they're little lovebirds at, at summer camp. And then Paul is trying to undo Angela's blouse, even though she does say, like, you know, hey, don't, like, I don't feel comfortable with that. And she just then goes to this kind of dissociative state, if you will. She's just kind of, like, laying on the beach, like, just looking up at nothing while Paul's, like, trying to undo her blouse. We then get a strange flashback to the children from before. We have Angela and Peter, um, who are, like, laughing at John, their dad, and his lover, who I guess is Lenny. They're in bed together. They're just kind of like cuddling and, you know, being gay. We have that. And then we see also that um, Peter and Angela in a bed together, just sitting across from one another. And the young boy is pointing at his sister and the bed is just kind of like rotating in this like shot. So we see this weird flashback going on. So don't quite know what to think of that exactly. But now we've kind of found out that it seems as if John and Lenny were together And, you know, I guess that Peter and Angela, they just, you know, were conceived, they were born and and all that. But 
actually, you know, John came out later in later in life or later on after he had children. So then we're in the next day and they're going to be playing Capture the Flag. So there's a thorough discussion on how to play the game Capture the Flag. Um, and then Paul and Angela talk about last night and how, you know, oh, I just wasn't ready. And Paul gets handsy with Angela a little bit and then Angela just storms away. And then Paul and Judy talk for a little bit, it looks like. Um, because, of course, Judy has to get all up in everyone's bullshit. And then Ricky and Angela walk on a path that's, like, kind of away from everybody. And then they walk through the woods because Ricky's all like, oh, hey, I know how we're going to win Capture the Flag. Just do this with me. So then um, Ricky and Angela, they're walking through the woods and all. And then Angela just kind of walks away from Ricky in the woods. And then we see Ricky happen upon Paul and Judy kissing, which is not good. I don't know if Angela actually saw that. I don't think she did. But of course, like, Ricky feels a certain way because that's his friend. And this is his, like, former flame or whatever kissing. Be like, you know, you're a real jerk. You know that, Judy? And then Judy's like, fuck you, Ricky. And then she just has this, like, pensive look on her face after she says, like, you know, looks. it's a look as if, like, you know, I did that. Yeah, I did. Then Paul calls out to Angela, and everyone but Judy walks away. Like I said, she's just kind of standing there. And Judy is left alone to contemplate her thoughts, which I thought was uh, just a really powerful uh, move by Karen Fields. So Paul, like, tries to talk to Angela a little bit, but then Judy comes up to Paul and Angela and says that Paul had called Angela a prude. That was the word you used, wasn't it? And Judy is just pretty much being a straight-up bitch to Angela. Mel and Ricky are then talking, because Mel comes up to Ricky, while Ronnie in the background is lifting weights, which I thought was great. And Mel's just kind of asking Ricky about how his summer's been going and all this kind of stuff. He wishes that there were more boys, because it's hard to get a baseball game started. And then Mel and Ricky, Mel is just like fighting with Ricky because Mel thinks that Ricky killed the other campers. So he's like shaking him and shit. And I'm just like, what the fuck kind of person are you do? What are you doing? It's crazy. So you have that kind of whole thing going on with Mel and Ricky. Then we see Meg come over with her big bag of bullshit, comes over with Judy and just like takes Judy. Uh, no, sorry. She takes Angela and just like by her own will, she just decides to throw Angela into the water, even though Angela's, like, screaming, saying, no, no, don't do it. You know, don't, like, throw me in the water. Because also, too, I mean, like, you know, Angela has trauma with water. So, like, what the hell are you even doing? So then Ricky sees this. He runs over. He saves his his cousin from the water. And then as, like, he saves them from the water, uh, you see these kids, like, throwing sand on, on um, Angela, which is, like, such a dick move. And then Ricky brings Angela back to where she was sitting, and he says something to the effect of, we won't let them get away with this. I promise we won't. So, apparently, actually, when it comes to the relationships between the actresses on this movie, apparently Felissa Rose got along with pretty much everyone on set, and especially with the females. So, like, Meg and Judy, you know, respectively, Karen Kami, um, Catherine Kami, and... Karen Fields, you know, she got along with them very well. So it was actually really hard to do that scene because they were almost like sisters at that point. They were very good friends. So it's always kind of weird when you're getting friends with people and then you have to like throw somebody in the water. So now it's at night and then the counselors are now being told what their night is going to consist of. So there's a social going on. Eddie is one of the people and he has to take his campers on a camping trip in the woods. So it's like this collection of young kids. And then Meg gets the night off. So Meg's all happy that she gets the night off. And then Meg and Mel are talking and they plan to meet up for dinner. 
And we are just, I'm just wondering what exact daddy issues like Meg has because Mel is literally like an old man running this camp and she's like a literal teenager or like, you know, supposed to be. So I'm like, what is going on here? I don't like it. So Meg goes back to her cabin and, you know, she wants to try to take a shower because she even says, you know, I got a date. And then Judy's like, who with? And Meg's like, it's a secret. Anyway, so Meg goes to try to take a shower, but everyone else is trying to shower and they're not going to let her, you know, cut in front. So she asks Judy, she's like, is the cabin next door still open? Is the water still running? Like, oh yeah, I think it is. So then Meg just goes next door to shower in the bunk next door. And then Meg is just showering. And I don't think she's ever taken a shower in her life because the way she does shower acting is just so weird. But we don't see any nudity or anything like that. You know, we just see her taking a shower, just humming to herself like, hmm, 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 hmm. It's so weird. It's, it's a choice. And then we see that Meg is killed in the shower with a knife to her back through the partition. And it's like, I guess, just like now going down her back. And then now she's dead. And the killer rinses off the knife in the shower with Meg's dead body in there, too. So we now see that one of the counselors, Eddie, is leading his campers through the woods. And, and you know, just casually, one of the campers is carrying a hatchet for some reason, like a little small hatchet. I don't exactly know why. And so then Paul and Angela talk to one another outside of the social. I guess they just, like, came from doing that. And Paul is asking forgiveness from Angela. And then Angela tells Paul to meet her at the waterfront after the social. So maybe it was, like, they're going to the social and then they're afterwards going to meet up at the waterfront. We then see that the campers in the woods are now sleeping, but then some of the campers are whining that they want to go back. So Eddie is taking two of the campers who are whining back into the car, and they leave the other campers in the woods. So these campers are just like kids, pretty much. We get a first-person point of view of our killer looking at the kids and also looking at the hatchet. So we kind of see that something's going to happen. Mel then goes to the social and he's asking around for Meg to see where she's at because, you know, he's wondering where he's she's at. And Judy and Mike, um, so Judy has gone back to her. She didn't go to the social, I don't think, but she and this guy Mike are kissing in their bunk. And Mike then hides under the bed when Mel comes in. Mel, again, is looking for Meg. And so Judy and Mel are talking a little bit about Meg. And Judy's just saying, like, well, I think she went next door to get a shower. And that was, like, around this time or whatever. And so then um, Mike leaves the cabin. So the guy that Judy was kissing leaves the cabin and just leaves Judy alone. So then Mel goes to the bunk next door. And that's when he finds uh, Meg's body in the shower, which just, like, fell out of the shower for some reason. And so he's just like, oh my god, I know who it is, like, I know, and then Mel's pretty much going to try and stop Ricky from killing anybody else. And so you're just like, alright, Mel, I don't know if it's Ricky or not, but if that's what you think, like, go ahead. So then we see Judy is curling her hair, and she sees, someone's, she sees somebody at the door of her cabin um, as she's curling her hair. And then she is talking to this person, and she's like, oh, it's you. Well, what do you want? And the killer just, like, knocks her out or whatever. And then you see that the killer has now put Judy into her bed. And you see that they're smothering her. And then also they take the curling iron she was just using. And they stick it up right into her vagina at this point. You don't see anything graphic. But you do see that whole thing. It's very implied. You see the hand go up. You see Judy's hand go up. And apparently she's now dead. So with a little bit of this scene, though, so you have that um, 
you notice in the scene with Judy and the curling iron, you notice that when you see the person who is like standing at the doorway, if depending on the quality that you're watching this at, you can very, very well see that it's like Ricky in a wig or something who's standing there. Um, and again, I don't think it was supposed to be like as high of quality or anything, um, to be able to show that. But this is actually because as part of those negotiations that, um, Felissa Rose's mother made, she didn't want her daughter to actually be the one doing any of the killings or anything. Um, so actually Jonathan Tierston, who was 17 at the time, actually was the stand-in for Felissa during these moments. So like anytime you see the killer's hands, that's Jonathan Tierston's hands. And in this shot, it's supposed to be, so when like, you know, Kenny gets killed in the boat or whatever, like that's Jonathan Tierston, all that stuff. But then you see in this, like, you just see that it's Jonathan Tierston in a wig pretty much. Um. So I don't think I was supposed to be like that, but that's how it came out. So now we're starting to close in on the end of our film. So we see that Eddie, um, after taking those two campers back to camp, he finds his other campers that were left in the woods dead as fuck. And he then throws up. We see that Ricky goes up to the main dining hall to try to get something to eat um, because he's just kind of been chilling at camp. He hasn't really been doing anything. I think he was apparently not feeling very well. You see that Ricky is walking back to his bunk with some food while Ronnie gets a phone call about the dead campers that were just found, as I'm assuming Eddie called him. And then while Ricky is walking back to his bunk, Mel then grabs Ricky and hits him, and is pretty much trying to kill him at this point, because Mel seems to think that Ricky is the one doing all these killings, and that it's going to put him in a business and all that. Uh, so you see that Mel has pretty much beaten the hell out of Ricky, and he then runs, and then Mel gets shot in the air, the throat with an arrow, and even before he's killed, he says, it can't be you. It can't be. And so then we still don't exactly know who our killer is. But again, you know, Mel seems to think it's Ricky. So the police come to the camp after being called. And Ronnie is telling the counselors to make sure none of their campers leave. But then one of the girls comes up and says, you know, Judy's missing. Angela's missing. So we don't exactly know what's going on in this point. And we see that Paul is now waiting for Angela down at the waterfront. And so Angela says Paul to Angela says to Paul, you know, let's go swimming. And that pretty much they want to go skinny dipping. So then you see that the police officer and the one of the counselors is going through the woods with the flashlights and they then find Ricky. So he's like, you know, bleeding from his nose and his face is a little bloody, but like they're thinking he's dead, but he's actually not dead. And they carry Ricky out of the woods and then a counselor, I think it's a female counselor, then goes and she finds Meg's body. And the police then go in there and they come out and they're like, oh my god, no, it's like, it's horrible. Uh, kind of a little fun fact. So the guy who's playing the police officer, he had a mustache when the earlier scene happened with Mel and Ronnie after Kenny died. But then in this scene, he had done another role where he had to not have a mustache. So the mustache we see here is actually a fake one. This counselor and police officer, they carry Ricky's body out of the woods. And like I said, um, a female counselor finds Meg's body. And then Ronnie and Susie are looking for Angela and Paul. And they're looking around for them. And they end up walking down to the waterfront. And so we see that Ronnie and Susie happen upon Angela. Her back is turned to us um, and to them while she's now humming. And we see this scene where pretty much um, Aunt Martha, 
uh, that we find out that one of the kids from the beginning survived the boating attack, as we already kind of knew. We then find out that actually Peter was the survivor of the boat accident. Angela, this character, has been Peter this whole time. So that's when we find out that Aunt Martha has pretty much uh, been raising Peter as Angela this whole time. And then we come back to present day and we see this infamous shot of kind of a nude, crazed Angela um, who's now just has this crazed look on her face, um, has this wild hair, and is just going, it's like growling and stuff like that. And then I think it's Ronnie who says, my God, she's a boy. And that's pretty much the end of our sleepaway camp. Now, a little bit of like kind of fun facts about this whole thing. So person who is playing crazed Angela at the end is actually a local college student from the area who at the time was a local college student and apparently even had to get drunk um, to be able to go and like do the whole nude scene. The face that they are wearing is actually a mask, which was made by, I believe, Edward French. It was made of dental acrylic, and it was cast off of Felicia, Felicia Rose's actual face. So they pretty much had to wear this mask and just be nude with like a flaccid penis. Um, so that's just like really weird, and uh, it's probably got to be a, an odd thing to to do as an acting career and then i also just wanted to read the little monologue that aunt martha gives at the end about this whole thing of you know peter being raised as angela so aunt martha in her closing monologue states oh you're going to enjoy living with us so much yes i know you are as a welcome home present i bought you such wonderful new clothes I just hope that Richard doesn't get jealous that I didn't get him anything. Oh, but then he is such a dear. I'm sure that he won't mind. You see, I've always wanted a little girl. But of course, when my husband left... Oh, well, that's all water under the bridge, as I always say. Water under the bridge. But it certainly will be a nice little surprise when Richard comes home to find a little girl in the house. Yes, I've always dreamed of having a little girl just like you. And then talking about how she's, like, named Angela now. Well, I think it means angel. Yes, I'm sure it does. And then pretty much you find out that Peter has been raised as Angela this whole time. So anyway, yeah, that's the end of Sleepaway Camp. So I know that my portrayal of Aunt Martha's ending monologue was uh, eerily accurate and eerily similar to how Desert Gould did it. Um, I know it's like we're the same person. But uh, generally, I mean, with this film, Sleepaway Camp, you know, it was shocking back in, you know, 1983. It's still shocking to people who have never seen this movie. It has a, like I said, it has a kind of complicated history of just how it represents, you know, the gay community and like the trans community. That's kind of a muddied sort of, sort of history. But overall, I think this movie is really just one of the films that's just such a bad film. It's so bad, but it is so, it's almost so good at the same time, though, because there are some strong choices being made in this movie. And... If anything, it's an example to watch of just like this kind of unconscious camp, if you will, because there's this term of like conscious camp and unconscious camp. So you have something like the Rocky Horror Picture Show or even like a lot of John Waters movies. They're like 
conscious camp. They're made to be this kind of over-the-top campy thing. And then you have unconscious camp, where I think this kind of falls into it a little bit, kind of, sort of, because I really think that Robert Hiltzik at the time was trying to make a, a horror film, but he kind of failed on every level. But he failed so much that, like, it kind of then comes around to be a good movie again, in a, in a weird way. And, of course, this movie did then spawn sequels. Some of them aren't that great, but, you know, it spawned sequels. It, it spawned a fan base of people who really like this story for all different reasons, whether it be the kills in it, or whether it just be the story of Angela and how she's kind of come to her own. Because in the second and third movie, she's played by Pamela Springsteen and is living as a woman, I guess, now. So that's a whole thing. So, yeah, I definitely would recommend at least watching Sleepaway Camp once. <laughs> um, you could see whether you hate it or like it. I uh, have not really seen any of the other other sleepaway camps uh doesn't mean i won't but uh at least this one i i really really enjoy in terms of being able to watch it right now um so currently it's on peacock at the moment that i know of it um but that may change uh it sometimes shows up on shutter so if you have a shutter subscription you can always kind of look up on that uh it sometimes is on tubi every so often um, you can probably find it on Pluto TV and like, you know, a couple different like free sites. Like I think, um, Freevee, which was IMDb TV at one point, um, you can always find that. I would maybe, uh, I would honestly try to not spend your money on it. Um, if you can, or like if it's already part of a subscription you may have, then I would maybe do it that way. I personally wouldn't pay to watch this movie. I would rather it be either part of a subscription that I already have, or I find it somewhere I could just watch it. I don't want to pay for this film if I don't have to, <laughs> but that's just me. I would definitely just recommend watching it just so you can see that you've seen it and whether you love it or hate it, it still has that fan base. So there you go. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do so by emailing cultcinemacircle at gmail.com. If you want to give any movie recommendations, give feedback on the show, or if you just want to say, hey girl, hey, I'm open to all of it. You can also follow Cult Cinema Circle on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd. Instagram handle is Cult Cinema Circle. Twitter handle is Cult Cine Circle. On those platforms, I tend to post when new episodes release. I'll post what the next episode is going to be. Uh, I make Instagram stories with a little fun facts and all that and just general fun stuff over there and on letterboxd you can find me at jesse j-e-s-s-e kremp k-r-e-m-p all one word on there i tend to log the movies that i've been watching i write little reviews about them and just general foolishness over there be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast on your podcatcher of choice. You can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Audible, or wherever you like to listen to your favorite podcasts. I make it pretty easy for you to find the show. Be sure to leave five stars and a one to two sentence review. Um, it helps get people to see the show more, and it helps more people find the show in general. As always, thank you for taking the time to listen to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast. And remember, meet me at the waterfront after the social. Take care. Bye.